Hi, I'm Dr. Dan Gardner, and I talk about traumatic brain injury recovery. And today I'm pleased to be speaking with Dr. Arnold Purish, neuropsychologist. Traumatic brain injury recovery. Welcome, Arnie. Hi, Dan. How are you? Good, thanks. Arnie, please tell me about your background and how you got into the area of traumatic brain injury. Well, I have a doctoral degree in clinical psychology. That's a PhD. And studying clinical psychology is essentially looking at someone's emotions, their thinking, their behavior, their personality. But there's not a lot of reference to the brain there. So to become a neuropsychologist, I also had to study quite a bit of neurology, the brain, relationships of the brain to emotions and thoughts and behaviors and personality. So that my specialty, my background is looking at people from the perspective, not only of their psychology, but also how these different phenomena take place and are, are produced by the brain itself. Mm -hmm. If somebody says, what is neuropsychology? How would you define it to them? I guess the simple way would be it's brain behavior relationships, but I like to distinguish it from maybe looking at, uh, at neurology, because you think of neurologists as, as being the people looking at, at the brain, and I look at the brain as well. There's quite a bit of overlap, but there's also some critical differences as well. Uh, generally, neurologists are more interested in the physiology of the brain, uh, the anatomy of the brain, looking at any medical problems that arise because of that. And, and so their focus is, in many cases, less on the behavior and the emotions than it really is much more in what's going on with the brain. So I like to think of them, to use a loose analogy, as if we had a car that's being brought into a shop. The neurologist is sort of the guy that looks under the hood, does the tune-up, decides how he can make the car run more smoothly. If it requires maybe major mechanical repairs, that's where you get the neurosurgeon involved. But ultimately, someone has to take that car out for a test drive. And that's what the neuropsychologist does. It takes what's going on with your brain and it tries to see how you function in daily life. So that if you're having your car backfiring, it's not gonna run as efficiently. If you have certain forms of dysfunction in the brain, you're not gonna function as well. So we look at those different areas and we try to see how it relates to the brain and in turn, how that might impact your daily functioning. I like that analogy, Arnie. So tell me, how is a neuropsychologist different than a psychiatrist or a neuropsychiatrist? Well, again, as with the neurologist, I think that there's a lot of overlap, but there's also important differences as well. So if you have a neurologist, if you have a neuropsychiatrist or psychiatrist, their training is in medicine. They go to medical school. And so by necessity, unless you have a special training such, such as you do, Dan, in psychoanalysis, oftentimes the emphasis is much more along the biomedical model. And so if you're going to a psychiatrist or a neuropsychiatrist, of course they want to figure out what's going on with the brain, but frequently their avenue to treatment will be much more by pharmacology using various medications. So if you have a seizure disorder, they may give you certain medications. If you have a mood disorder, anxiety disorder, if you have a variety of problems that may be due to things like stroke or head trauma, which we're going to be talking about, uh, there's a number of emotional, personality, psychiatric disorders that can emerge from that. And they will generally approach that much more from a medical approach. Good psychiatrists, good neuropsychiatrists clearly 
about the brain behavior relationships as do neuropsychologists. So that's probably where we overlap. But where neuropsychologists, I think, differ from the medical professionals is that our training is an extensive evaluation of personality and emotion and behaviors and, and cognition. And we are trained obviously to observe these problems from a qualitative or clinical perspective, but also we are trained in a number of standardized tests that take a look at how a person's functioning uh, will be manifest after brain dysfunction or even in the normal person after something is suspected or is wrong with the brain. I think probably in the general public, people are familiar with things like IQ tests. Okay, mm -hmm. or in school, we've had academic achievement tests. Now, what these are, it differs from if I would interview you, do a clinical interview, or a psychiatrist or a neuropsychiatrist would interview you. They're, of course, probing your cognition, they're probing your intelligence. But to a greater or lesser extent, that's really just kind of scratching the surface. Uh, when you do something like an IQ test, it takes a couple of hours. It looks at all sorts of domains of intellectual functioning, including many that you simply can't uncover by an interview. When you're psychologists, uh, we always have people do things like trying to put the square peg into the round hole. I'm kidding, mm -hmm. of course, but you know, putting together blocks or puzzles, things that you really can't get at just by talking to someone. But then we'll look at vocabulary. We'll look at someone's ability to understand the world. And so that ultimately, after a couple of hours, we have scoured quite a bit of terrain, how one's brain is able to function intellectually. But we go beyond that. We do the same thing with memory. We do the same thing with problem solving and reasoning, perception and language, and, and so on. So usually the sort of testing we do can take three, four, five, six hours. And by that time, I would like to say that we try to leave no neuron unturned. Oh. And, and so in essence, when you ask people to do certain uh, cognitive tasks, uh, you, if you will, light up certain areas of the brain. Other cognitive tasks light up other areas of the brain. And so by giving a comprehensive battery, uh, we try to assess as much of the brain real estate as we can. And in that way, not only can we give you a fairly comprehensive picture of how a person functions in all these different realms, but we can use that information as well to be able to diagnose where in the brain we may have some problems. So Arnie, when a brain injury survivor thinks about neuropsychological testing, how soon after the injury should they have testing? Well, it's not a question of how long after. The issue is what's the purpose of the testing, okay? A lot of conditions when they first occur, tend to be more acute. They tend to affect the brain more. I'm talking about uh, things like strokes or, or, uh, or tumors, or again, what we're talking about, traumatic brain injury. Generally, the onset is the worst. There's other conditions, of course, that you get worse over time. So you might have a, a tumor that continues to grow quickly, and as a result, it's creating more and more damage to the brain and, and other secondary effects. The person goes downhill or uh, something like Alzheimer's disease, which is a deteriorating condition. So for one thing, we can give testing early on and we can give it periodically after that. It, it's a nice objective and quantitative way to track a person's uh, course 
And of course, with Alzheimer's, you might expect them over time, the testing is going to be going in the more impaired direction. They're going to get worse and worse, unfortunately. But generally, with something like head injury, we expect the person to be the worst off early on. But as time goes on, the brain begins to recover, and we begin to see their neuropsychological functioning improve. So one reason we want to do this is obviously there's some good information to be had when you can see where a person's at at a particular point in time. Are they improving when you expect them to improve? Or are they going downhill? So if someone with traumatic brain injury looks worse two years later, we don't expect that. So mm -hmm. it makes us wonder if something else is going on. Is mm -hmm. there a new neurologic disorder or over course of time, they've lost their job because of their head injury, they've lost their marriage, they can't function socially, are they getting depressed? In any event, by comparing expectation with what's going on, it will alert us to potentially confounding conditions that need to be attempted as well. So that is one reason that you can test at various points in time. The other reason is that when we talk about doing treatment, we need to know where a person's at. And so that if I test someone early on, I may be able to tell how impaired they are then. And when a person's very impaired, they're not going to be able to profit from certain types of treatments. Okay. So if we track them over time and we see there's certain degrees of improvement, we know that there's certain things they can profit from. So we could alter or modify, update the treatment regimen as well. So there's a number of advantages. And so there's no right or wrong time to test someone. It's a question of what type of information are we attempting to gather from assessing at a certain point in time that hopefully will be able to guide questions such as treatment, differential diagnosis, and prognosis. You're talking about very extensive and comprehensive testing that you do. It's much more extensive than a mini mental status exam that I might do or a primary care physician might do. You started to say what areas of cognitive functioning you look at, what parts of the brain you want to light up with these tests. Can you go over that again and, and list those for me? Well, sure. And I would say that it's not all just cognitive. The neuropsychological evaluation is looking at the functioning in general. And so when we think cognition, we think intelligence, we think learning and memory, we think language, we think executive functions, we think perception, things along those lines. But people also deal with the world with sensory motor functions. So we look at things like coordination and dexterity. We look at various sensory skills as well. And part of the evaluation also is looking at things like emotional and personality variables. The problem with that is that it's very difficult to come up with a test of the brain that can tap into areas that look at personality. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some areas of the brain. One area is, is right behind the eyes. It's called the orbital frontal region of the brain. And when you damage that, and you just purely damage that, frequently your cognition is, it can be perfectly intact. But that's a region of the brain that allows us to regulate our emotions. It's very important in impulse control, in inhibiting or damping down our responses. And people like that can begin to feel angry, for example. And that anger may bloom into full rage. And then it runs its course and they return back to normal. And the cognitive brain says, huh, shouldn't have done that, okay? But 
The neuropsychological exam tries to look at as much as we can. Some of it can't be tested, and some of the things that can be tested are not necessarily cognitive in nature. So a long way around the cognitive sorts of things. We are looking at perception. Now, perception is different than sensation. People see, they hear, they feel but ultimately they process what they see, they feel, they hear. They may make out that there's certain sounds that have some sort of meaning or voice tones. When you see things, oftentimes we may be looking at maps. We may be looking at very complicated visual stimuli in the world. And so to interpret that goes beyond seeing. We first check out whether or not the basic senses are okay, but then if they are, once they get into the brain, we want to see how the brain perceives them, in other words, interprets them. We look at language, and language could be how well you express yourself, whether you're finding words, whether you can speak fluently, whether what you say is spoken in a comprehensible way. We look at people's ability to comprehend what's said to them learning and memory. So we will give tests of learning verbal material, such as like when someone says something to you, how well can you hold on to this information later on? So we have immediate and delayed memory. We look at whether a person has forgotten something or whether they just can't recall it from, from the memory store. So we call that retrieval versus recognition. So lots of times people can't remember things, but if you give them a little hint, they can. So it's not really a problem with memory storage, but somehow or another, they've forgotten where they've put it. So, mm -hmm. so look at that. We also look at nonverbal memory. So if you're looking at pictures or faces or things along those lines, which happens in daily life, we do the same sort of thing. There's the IQ test we talked about. There's tests of executive function, so problem solving and reasoning. So mm -hmm. in daily life, oftentimes we encounter situations that may be a bit ambiguous, we haven't come across before, they're a bit novel, or they may be something we've encountered before, but there's a twist on it. And so the intact and active brain tries to take what it knows to bear upon solving the problem. So we have tests that put people in somewhat novel situations. When we look at intellectual functioning, lots of times we are assessing the sorts of things people have learned through experience. So that if you've had a high degree of schooling, maybe your vocabulary is pretty good, or you're asked facts about what's going on in the world or history, that's pretty good. But it doesn't really touch to a greater extent what happens when we approach situations in the real world that are new or ambiguous or you've experienced before, but this may be a little bit different twist on it. We ultimately have to take what we know and basically bring that to bear upon solving a situation that we don't know. How do we proceed in situations that are new or ambiguous? So we give tests that give people new or ambiguous situations and see how they go about solving it. So that you can't test everything, but ultimately by doing things like that, you have a sense of if someone was to encounter something new or novel in the real world, how might we expect them to go about it and how successful might they be? Now, one of the critical things when we look at brain functioning, it's really cognitively, we have sort of a scaffolding. It's in a hierarchical order. So people are in a coma. You're not testing them cognitively. If you've ever been woken up from a deep sleep in the middle of the night, you're just too out of it to really do anything cognitive. If you've had two hours sleep the night before, you might be able to function, but you're a lot slower, you lose your train of thought, you feel somewhat muddled. What I'm basically saying is one's level of arousal is very important. And arousal directly relates to how well we can focus, pay attention, 
and concentrate. So if someone has very poor concentration, ability to focus, they're not going to be able to remember things you tell them because their mind's going to be wandering. So we also have to look at that. So we look at a number of different measures that look at how well they can focus, how well they can manipulate information in their head. Mental math, for example, if you're trying to figure out how much uh, tip should be on something, or you have to figure out how much change you should be getting back, what have you, that is much more of a concentration sort of task. We call that working memory. So we look at things along those lines. And ultimately as well, we're looking at speed of performance, how fast someone does it, because someone who can complete a task that has intellectual demands quickly is doing it differently than someone who can solve the same task, but it takes them three times as long. And this is a particular issue where we get into it a little bit more with traumatic brain injury. I can't tell you how many school-age kids I've seen that may have A's or B's before an injury, and then I see them two years later, A's and B's, and so you think, okay, anything wrong? They go, well, I'm studying four hours a night where I used to study an hour a night, and that has real consequences for daily life. So we call that proficiency. Proficiency is basically how well you do something as a function of how quickly you do it. If you do it very quick, you're very proficient. You know, some smart people sometimes just seem to get things like that, and other people have to mull over it a bit. So we also need to look at not only attention concentration, but also how quickly people could put things together. There's a number of things we look at, not all cognitive, but we certainly do look at a lot of cognitive things. Thank you, Arnie, for that extensive discussion. Can the test results tell us how a person is functioning outside in their daily life? Yes and no. This is something we call ecological validity, meaning that how valid are the test results or the results of the evaluation, how valid are they in predicting functioning in, in daily life? So for example, if someone does poorly on a memory test, might we expect them to do poorly on memory tasks in, in the real world? And many times these things do predict, but the critical thing to keep in mind is that the testing situation is a different type of situation than what you might have in any given real world context. Mm-hmm. I might look at, let's just, a mother with a mild head injury is pretty bright. She comes to my office and I find out that she actually does pretty well on testing, okay? But the testing situation, it's a quiet room. It's one-on-one. I'm presenting one task after another and mm-hmm. she does pretty well. But then she tells me, you know what? I can't maintain my train of thought, I get overwhelmed pretty easily, and I just can't do certain things in the real world. So I could say, according to these tests, everything's functioning pretty well. Now let's fast forward to that night. She's home, she's been tired from testing all day, and she has kids who are five and six years old, and her husband's just coming home, and she is trying to cook dinner while all three of them are trying to get her attention. She's trying to focus on something, she's tired from all day, and you get three people nagging her, and her brain just kind of short circuits. That's not the sort of situation that we see in testing. So under those circumstances, what I can tell you is that the person's functioning should be good under a certain set of circumstances. Uh Now, in a contrary way, sometimes what we see in testing is, is much more demanding than some things in real life. 
uh, I might find that a person has very poor spatial skills, meaning that they don't navigate their environment, they get lost, they make wrong turns, but they never get lost when they're driving because they use a map, they write down directions, they do GPS, right? So what I'm testing, that they have poor spatial skills or under certain circumstances, but people find ways to work around their problems. Mm -hmm. And so I might not see that then. So the testing gives us a lot of information about the brain. It tells us how a person could be functioning, all other things equal, but then you need to take that into account. The more poorly someone does on testing, the more likely you are to predict they're going to do poorly in real life, okay? But the better they do on testing, the less likely, unless you have something that triggers the problem that may not be relevant in the testing situation. This is why we call it neuropsychological evaluation rather than neuropsychological testing, because the evaluation, we're interviewing the person for quite some time. We're trying to find out how they're functioning in daily life, under what circumstances they fall apart. We find out about their emotions, their behaviors. We observe them during the testing. Maybe they do fine until all of a sudden they get anxious. And if I gave the same test later on and they weren't anxious, they may do fine. So we might predict that they have potential for functioning fine, but when they get anxious, that undercuts them. So there's a number of variables. Performance is not consistent even in normals across contexts, but even more so with brain injury folks. Good point that under a certain amount of stress, we all can have impaired functioning. Exactly. So what is the test results or the evaluation results? Tell us about the extent of recovery and the speed of recovery. Uh, generally speaking, that somewhat depends on more factors than the test results. But And we're also talking, when we say recovery, we're talking about uh, various entities that do recover, right? So we're yes. talking about strokes. We, we're talking about uh, head injuries and things along those lines. So we're talking about course of recovery or course of deterioration, and they could probably inform us in, in both ways. But uh, generally speaking, the rule of thumb is that in more acute circumstances, like right after stroke or right after head injury, there's certain portions of the brain that are maximally damaged, but because it just happened, that area of the brain or those areas of the brain that are damaged are not the only brain areas that are dysfunctional. These damaged areas of the brain have connections with a number of other areas, and they have a tendency to pathologically inhibit healthy areas to which they're connected. The 25 cents word for that is called diascasis. So early on, you tend to see lots of things impaired on neuropsychological testing. As the person recovers, you begin to see a lot of healthy areas begin to return to normal. You also see the acute metabolic disturbances, the toxic problems in the brain that are much more present early on. Those begin to recover as well. So over time, the generalized cognitive picture begins to lessen and recede in the background. And the more we begin to see certain specific problems stand out, the more we begin to think, huh, there has been a fair amount of recovery already. So the more you see very specific things stand out against a background, areas that look fine, actually in some ways, it tells you there's been a fair amount of recovery. And the more that difference is, actually you kind of say the worst of prognosis, right? So that if all of a sudden, almost everything is well in the normal range, except for one or two factors, and they're down there, moderately impaired, 
yeah, you know what? The brain has pretty much uh, recovered, and this doesn't look so good in the long run. So we can get a snapshot into the future by looking, I guess you can say, figure and ground of test results. Mm-hmm. And of course, we bring a lot of other information to bear upon that. We know the person's two years after injury. We, we don't have to just do it in isolation. And someone's had a stroke and they still have problems two years later. They may still have massive deficits. It may not be this figure ground sort of thing. But, you know, chronicity at that point, that's going to be bad, too. But we can't necessarily tell that just from the test results by themselves. So, Arnie, let's talk a little about brain injury. What is a concussion? Concussion, there's various types of traumatic brain injury. As the name says, that there's been some sort of trauma, usually a blunt trauma, where someone may hit their head on something, usually in an automobile accident, or they get thrown from a motorcycle. And so their head hits something, and the brain starts uh, actually in, inside of the skull. We have the type that uh, is called a crush injury. This is if someone uh, hit you over the head with something. You're at a construction site, and a two-by-four falls from uh, 25 feet and, and hits you on the head. So that, that's really a moving object hitting a stationary brain. But for the most part, we typically talk about post-concussive phenomenon in the first scenario, where you get the head hitting a stationary object with some force. And so the brain is really the consistency, some people have said, of toothpaste, of jello, of, of silly putty. In any event, it's a lot less dense than the surrounding skull. So the head stops all of a sudden, but the brain can twist, it can reverberate back and forth. There's a number of things that can happen to it. And if the damage that occurs to the brain is not that great, and typically clinically, We can infer how bad the damage is by the person's cognitive state right after the injury. And we look at a number of things. We look at whether they've lost consciousness. Oftentimes, people will be awake. They may walk and talk but not remember what's going on. We call that post-traumatic amnesia. We may all be familiar with a football player who doesn't know they're concussed. They throw a touchdown pass, and they don't even remember that they did that. That's a unique example, because usually when you're concussed, you're not that capable. But we do know that many times people think they're unconscious. They simply don't remember what's going on, because the brain gets concussed enough that it stops, stops processing what's going on around them. And so as far as you're concerned, you've lost consciousness, but you just haven't put in that memory. And, and so we have mild, moderate, and severe traumatic brain injuries. Mild traumatic brain injury, I think, and concussion are usually used synonymously. I don't like the fact they're equated. But nonetheless, when you see those, they're often used synonymously. And to have a mild traumatic brain injury or concussion, we're typically talking about someone uh, who's had relatively minimal alteration of consciousness. And we look at that in terms of if they've lost consciousness, it has to be less than 30 minutes. If they have what we call this post-traumatic amnesia, it has to be less than 24 hours, okay? When you get into the moderate range for loss of consciousness, it could be 30 minutes up to 24 hours, and then severe is over 24 hours, so you've lost consciousness for more than a day. For post-traumatic amnesia, up to 24 hours is mild, 24 hours to a week is moderate, and after a week, that's considered severe. So to make a long story short, too late for that, 
we're talking about someone who has a loss of consciousness of less than a half hour, and if they have a gap in their memory, it is less than 24 hours. Well, Ernie, why do they call it a mild traumatic brain injury when pe some people, after a mild traumatic brain injury, can have problems that are pretty serious and interfere with their functioning and are long-lasting? So why do they say mild? It may be a question of degree. I mean, some people have moderate traumatic brain injuries, some people have severe traumatic brain injuries that recover pretty well. But the fact of the matter is, when we look at people and we put them into these three different categories, it's more of a continuum than anything else, we find that people who have severe traumatic brain injuries function worse in daily life after the injury than moderate and even less so mild. It doesn't mean that a mild traumatic brain injury can have profound effects upon your life, but we call it mild compared to moderate and severe, where you're more likely to have more severe and chronic problems than mild. So the mild has more to do with diagnostic criteria than the severity of the symptoms and problems that follow the injury. One expects for moderate or severe, there may be more severe symptoms over the long term. But again, that's, that, there's a lot of individual variability. But Ultimately, what we're looking at is how a person functions in daily life, and we're trying to look at what the brain is capable of doing after mild traumatic brain injury. If, in fact, their daily life makes demands of those regions of the brain, then they're going to have some real problems. So I, I like to say that two different people with the same exact injury but have different demands or circumstances in daily life will have a different degree of disability. So you have someone who's had a concussion, but they're a guy or a woman who works on an assembly line and they do a repetitive, relatively non-cognitive task all day. They come home, they watch sitcoms, they basically have, they, they don't have a lot of intellectual type of interests. They're, they're different types of interests. You have that same injury to someone who is their boss in the factory. And this is a person who is managing a thousand people. He has a number of executives under him or her, comes home and has a very intellectually, culturally based life. This person has a mild cognitive problem. This may actually turn out to be something that they can't even work anymore. They can't mm -hmm. keep up with their high level friends. They go home and they try to read and they keep losing their train of thought and they can't keep up with that. They have mild irritability and all of a sudden they're losing their, you know, their, their temper. This could create a rather grave disability, it completely upends their lifestyle, whereas in the first case, the demands are less in life. And as a result, you might almost say no harm, no foul. That's not entirely true because people with mild injuries who don't have great demands in their life, let's just say they're young, they may have a hard time working up the corporate ladder because the higher you work up or a kid who may be doing okay in fifth grade, by the time in high school, the intellectual and academic demands are much greater. So all of a sudden they begin to show greater disability as the demands in the real world grow. So you're less likely to show problems with mild compared to moderate. Moderate, you're likely to show it more readily across circumstances and certainly severe, that would be even more the case, but you're not free from problems. So when you have impairments, you don't necessarily have disability unless there's an intersection with a demand for that impairment. Gotcha. So you're saying, Arnie, that similar impact can cause different results because of different 
cognitive demands, are there other factors that can lead to different results and different problems? I think in some respects, they tend to bear on some of the same issues. So for example, we know that people have a good supportive family, right? People have good insurance, right? They can afford treatment. Those sorts of things may actually lessen the demands on them. There may be a family who is very sophisticated, they're involved in treatment, and they don't necessarily label the person's change behavior in a way that may complicate things with anxiety and depression and family stress. We also need to take the person not just from a cognitive perspective, but how they were doing emotionally and personality and intellectually. Someone with greater resources intellectually or emotionally, greater resilience, is likely to cope better. Sometimes people are very successful because they're very hard driving. They're very perfectionistic. They have a very good work ethic and they succeed well in life. Unfortunately, that may be a double-edged sword because they may tolerate errors in themselves far less graciously than someone else who says, oh, well. So one's personality, one's environment, one's resiliencies, in addition to the demands of the environment and the cognitive problems, all of those figure into prognosis. Thanks. So Arnie, when you see cognitive impairment on the test results, is that because of brain damage only or are there other factors that could account for that? Oh, there's all sorts of things that go into it. So we take certain populations and we look at risk factors, okay? And one risk factor for traumatic brain injury is being a risk taker, right? And, you know, you can get adolescent males at the testosterone factor. There's drinking, there's drugs. There's a very high base rate of things like emotional dysregulation disorders, like attention deficit disorders. Oftentimes, these people may have learning disorders. And so when they come to a neuropsychologist for evaluation, we know that even if they didn't have the head injury, if they had a history of alcohol abuse, if they've had a history of attention deficit disorder, if they've had a history of dyslexia, all of these things are going to show up on their current testing. The evaluation only tells you how they're functioning at this point in time. We need to sort out through history and through, as a neuropsychologist, we learn what sort of patterns may look like it's due to the head injury versus due to ADHD versus dyslexia versus alcohol abuse and so on so that everything comes to play. So on the test results themselves, can you distinguish between brain damage and pain and medication effect and anxiety and depression? Is there a way to do that apart from the clinical history that you take? You are bringing another set of factors. My, my prior answer basically said anything that directly affects the brain, right? ADHD, dyslexia, alcohol abuse. But you're bringing up things like pain, anxiety and depression or the fact that the person doesn't want to be there and you're making them go through it so motivation may be a factor as well maybe i'm getting them on a day that they haven't had too much sleep or maybe they have a cold or they're uh, they're feeling nauseous maybe they have significant psychiatric problems they have paranoid delusions about the the tester maybe they are where english is a second language and our tests were not uh, the, the scores were not developed in that, that sort of group basically i can list you a couple of dozen factors that could impact the test results and 
one thing we know is that oftentimes when you have emotional factors, they tend to give you inconsistent test results. The example I said before, let's just say I give someone a test of attention concentration and they're anxious, they may do poorly on that. They can't concentrate when they're anxious. But if I give them the same test or a very similar test later on and they're calm, they may do fine. The brain generally does not have that sort of inconsistency. If you do well on a certain test that requires certain, you should expect the person more or less to do well on other tests that require the same abilities. And if they don't do well on those other tests, there may be other things those other tests measure that that first test didn't, okay? So we look for consistencies and inconsistencies, but at the end of the day, ultimately we have to say something simply don't make sense and we have to run just the test results. We need to do our clinical interview, our observations, read the records, that sort of thing, talk to family members, collateral sources. So it's more than just the testing. It's helpful to get data from outside sources apart from the testing itself. Absolutely. So Arnie, what's new in the field of neuropsychology? Well, I started in the field in the 1970s. Neuropsychology, I think, as a discipline has its roots in World War II, so back to the 1940s, because we found out that these uh, cognitive tests might actually tell you if there's something wrong with someone's brain. And so you had a lot of soldiers coming back with head injuries or what have you, and you wanted to find if they're impaired. And oftentimes it's too expensive or even too dangerous to do things like pneumoencephalograms or EEGs or what have you, and they weren't that sensitive. But we found that the cognitive tests can actually pick up things. But over the years, the tests have gotten better and better as we've learned more about the brain. And I would say that the field has simply continued to advance in the sophistication of the tests, our understanding of the test results. And of course, as there have been advances in the general neurosciences like functional imaging, like functional MRI, we are beginning to get a much better appreciation of neuropsychological results and what may be going on in the brain when things like CAT scans or MRIs are too sensitive. Neuropsychological results are very sensitive to brain dysfunction. And in the past, the neuropsychologist may be the only one who's saying there's something wrong with the brain because the CAT scans or MRIs were normal. But now that we're looking at things like metabolism of the brain with PET scans and functional MRIs, we are finding out that, that there are issues with the brain that correlate with the neuropsychological testing. So I would say that the technology is not vastly different other than the fact it's getting more sophisticated. We're improving. Mm -hmm. You know, there's more computerized testing that's coming in. In the field of rehabilitation, they're using more things like virtual reality. And I'm hoping that neuropsychological models begin to guide things like neurofeedback, which is modulating brain waves in the same way that you do with biofeedback. That's very promising. It's been oversold and understudied thus far. But the more we understand about how the brain relates to behavior and emotions, the better models we're going to have for what brain waves to manipulate with neurofeedback. Right. So, Arnie, going back to the different factors that can affect the test results, what about truthfulness? What about if someone's either consciously or unconsciously exaggerating or not telling the truth? How does the testing show that? Okay, so we're talking about um, neuropsychological testing is what I call client or patient-driven, which means that you need the focus and the cooperation of the patient. Not so much for an imaging technique, right? If you're doing an MRI 
as long as you keep from moving around, that MRI is going to take a pretty valid picture of whatever area of the body that is being imaged. But if you do neuropsychological testing, and I come across this a lot because I do a lot of medical legal work, that uh, people who are plaintiffs in cases may have a vested interest in looking like they're performing more poorly than they really are. And so I give them a memory test. What's to keep them from performing more poorly than they're capable of doing? Okay. What's to keep them from offering more complaints or more severe complaints than they really have? So there's always this question of effort as well as maybe symptom magnification. So we have to look at that. Symptom magnification is something where people give more complaints, whether they are real complaints that they're just magnifying or false complaints, whatever. And generally we have a number of questionnaires in which we have validity scales. And that something like the MMPI, the MMPI is just one example of a number of personality tests that are distinguished not only that they look at some complaints, they also look at whether a person may be exaggerating or magnifying or actually trying to deny problems. So to a certain extent, we can rely on those scores to see whether or not there's magnification or what we call over-reporting or there's minimization or what we call under-reporting. That's different than effort, all right? So how you perform on a test is not a question of whether you're magnifying or not. It's whether you're trying or not. And so there are certain things we see in people who are not trying that are patterns that are pretty typical of people who are not trying. And there have been a number of tests that have been developed that capitalize on these principles. And lots of times are referred to tests of malingering, but malingering is nothing that you can pick up from a test. All you can pick up from a test is that someone is not performing up to expectations. Maybe malingering is what the issue is, but maybe as we talked about before, maybe they're anxious, maybe they're depressed, maybe they're sick. There could be a number of things. So our test results, there are certain test scores, certain test patterns that we could look at that we say, you know what, this person's likely not performing up to their capabilities. But unless you have some very specific patterns that are basically very specific to malingering, all we can do is hope to say that they're underperforming. It's then up to the clinician to put it all together and determine why. I see. So, Arnie, from your point of view as an evaluator, doing very extensive and comprehensive testing, do you have any advice for survivors or families or healthcare providers about approaching TBI? Sure. Well, this kind of harkens back to your question on the timing of testing. And I think that giving a person the neuropsychological evaluation at various stages gives you a sense of where they're at then. And this is information that can be fed back directly to uh, caretakers. So they know what's going on, what to expect, not to exceed demand. One of the unfortunate things that happens with traumatic brain injury is something that is oftentimes referred to by the moniker of the silent epidemic which basically means if you break your arm, people can see that. They will react to you appropriately, okay? But if you damage your brain, and particularly if you have a concussion that in daily life, a lot of people can't even tell there's anything wrong with you, but then all of a sudden you're losing your train of thought or you're forgetful. Oh, you know, you never listen to what I say when in fact your mind may have wandered. Or, you know, you're being lazy. People tend 
to be misevaluated by others. Oftentimes they get into situations that the demands exceed their capabilities. So they may go back to work too soon. They may go back to school too soon and they're failing. And as a result over time, even on routine, the demands are exceeding their capabilities. They start getting progressively depressed, anxious, and distressed. And so at the end of the day, even though the brain is functioning better, they're more disabled. And so the neuropsychological evaluation can help you sort out the factors, whether it's the brain, whether it's some other factor, whether it's over emotional type of thing, and essentially help the person and the caretakers design the environment appropriate to where the person's at. Is there anything else you want to add? It's a very gratifying field. It's great to see people with traumatic brain injuries getting better. It's very satisfying that you can give these people feedback they understand. Being a neuropsychologist is different than a neurologist because the neurologist is showing people pictures of the brain and they're explaining these sorts of things that are very critical and important for them to know. But as a neuropsychologist, you're kind of hitting them where they're at, who they are. Like I said, I do a lot of medical legal work and I always tell the people who come and I evaluate, I said, of course you need to show the MRIs, you need to see the neurologist. And the jury has to understand how your brain has been injured. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they're gonna to wanna to know, so what? What does this mean? How does this injury affect you? And as a neuropsychologist, and of course you as a neuropsychiatrist can appreciate, we deal with daily functioning. We're talking their language. We're saying what they can and can't do. They could relate to that. It's very gratifying to be on a person's level and give them information that they can readily identify with and hopefully utilize. Very good. Well, Artie, I want to thank you for taking the time and effort to talk to me, and it's been very helpful. Good. It's a pleasure. Please let me know in the comments what questions you have and what other topics you'd like me to discuss. 